0: primary care knowledge
1: boost vertigo hello and welcome to primary care knowledge boost thanks so much for joining us today Um, we're absolutely delighted to be able to bring you this episode with dr emma stapleton and David J. So Dr. Emma Stapleton is a um, consultant ENT doctor, and David J. or Dave J. is a clinical scientist in audiology. Yeah, this one
0: has been on the wish list for a very long time for us, um, and looking at feedback for um, for a long while. So we were very excited to be able to talk to them. Um, we start with our approach to filtering through the causes of dizziness, and then look more specifically at vertigo, um, starting with how to tell central and peripheral vertigo apart.
1: Yeah, and then we go through a bit more about the red flags for central causes of vertigo. uh, And then they take us through typical histories that are classical for peripheral causes of vertigo, which is really good. Um, they also talk us through the points on history and examination that will really help us work out the causes. Yep. Um and then they chat us through investigations and management and look at what happens in
0: audiology and ENT joint clinics. Um, so it really is a, a fabulous episode and they are so succinct with their information and um, we think that you'll find it um, as useful as we do. And we'll be back at the end um, with our learning points as always.
1: So um, would you mind introducing yourselves and explaining a bit about your current roles, please?
2: Hi, thanks for having us. Um, I'm Emma Stapleton. I'm an ENT consultant at the Manchester Royal Infirmary, and I specialise in all things to do with adult ears, so auditory implants, adult hearing disorders, and balance disorders. And I work very closely with my colleagues in audiology.
3: Hi, uh, my name's Dave Jay. I'm uh, in audiology uh, as a clinical scientist, and I uh, work almost exclusively in vestibular diagnostics and rehab, and cochlear implants, uh, mostly with adults.
1: Wow, brilliant. And we're very, very excited to have you both here. So thank you both so much for joining us because this has been a really very much requested episode to talk about Vertigo. So if we start with the primary care perspective, we're getting somebody in and they're telling us that they're a bit dizzy or woozy or feel a bit funny. Um, Where would you go? How would you start differentiating between the causes?
3: The, the approach that I've always used, um, even before I kind of came across it, is the um, timing and triggers approach. And uh, there's a there's a bunch of neurologists and audio and ENT doctors and physiotherapists in Johns Hopkins who've published about this a lot. And the way the way that I tend to think about it is, you know, you have essentially four types of dizziness. Um, you can split most dizziness in half by saying, is it a one-off? As, is this the first time it's ever happened? Or is it multiple episodes? Um, So, if you then split them into two, and you've got is it a one off or an episode? And within each of those two groups, you've got has it been triggered or is it completely random and spontaneous? So, that gives you four groups. So, you've got your one off that is completely out of the blue, and you've got your one off that has come along after something obvious. And then you've also got your episodes that appear completely out of the blue, and you've got your episodes. That are triggered by something so if you have dizziness that comes along after something obvious that might be a head trauma that might be drug use they'll use that will usually be obvious in the history and that will lead you down a kind of a post-exposure route there if you've got dizziness that's come out of nowhere and they've never had it before to me you're thinking about either some kind of inflammatory inner ear event like a vestibular neuritis or a labyrinthitis or the differential that there, there would be a posterior circulation stroke Um, and then on the other side if you've got multiple episodes if they are triggered reliably by something it's usually by the person's movement and you know then you start thinking about bppv with particular triggers which we can talk about later Uh, or possibly things like postural hypertension if they're standing up quickly and then episodes that come along with no trigger at all you generally split those into many disease and vestibular migraine. So that, you know, that gives you options within each of those four categories. And there are obviously things that lie outside of those, but that, those are the kind of general, that's my, that would be my general, you know, in thinking about timing and triggers. So, you know, what triggers it off and how long does it last for? Do you want to say anything about that?
2: Yeah, so my personal approach is slightly different to David's. He's briefly mentioned the things that are outside of that spectrum, and I think it's really important to try to pin those down or exclude them early on. So if we think about human balance, it's not just all about the inner ears, but in our ENT and audiology balance clinic, we see loads of cases that have got nothing to do with people's ears. They're to do with their circulation. You know, they're to do with um, psychological factors. They're to do with all sorts of other things, vision, uh, proprioceptive problems. So I think if we try and remember that human balance comes not only from the inner ears, but also from the proprioception in the limbs, from the visual input, and having good central connections, which requires a healthy brain and good circulation. Patients often come in and use the word vertigo um, incorrectly, and I'm sure you guys get this as well. Patients go on Google and they come in and say, I've got vertigo, doctor. But when when you ask a few questions, they haven't got vertigo at all. So I personally like to sort of get down into exactly what they're experiencing um, before trying to pin down the cause of of whatever it is that's going on. Mm -hmm. And that can be the hardest part. And one of the things that we talk about in in balance um, is that it really is all about the history. We do do investigations and we do examine our patients, but actually the vast majority of balance um, conditions can be pinned down with a really great clinical history. Yeah.
0: That was a really nice overview, and I've not actually come across um, that way of dividing it into timing and triggers before, um, and it makes a lot of sense in my head. I'm like, why has nobody told me that before? Um, but the um, we wanted to drill down um, a bit more into specifically about vertigo, um, so we wondered if you could give a definition of what that
2: actually is um, for for the listeners. So, so, so vertigo is is an illusion of movement. Now, inner ear, acute balance disorders often do involve vertigo, and that's why it's really important to find out whether a patient is experiencing vertigo, so an illusion of movement, an illusion of spinning, a feeling that the room is moving, or whether they're experiencing something else. Would you agree?
3: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I'd probably add to that in that, you know, what we call true, we call it true rotatory vertigo because obviously the word vertigo is often badly used and Alfred Hitchcock's partly responsible for that. Although that would be acrophobia, the fear of heights, right? But vertigo, the rotatory spinning sensation is almost, almost always not entirely, but almost always from uh, either the inner ears or or an imbalance in the central vestibular system. And the reason for that is you have vestibular ocular reflexes, which come from your uh, inner ears and move your eyes. And when the two vestibular systems on either side of the body are not symmetrical, then you'll get a a vestibular ocular reflex generated from one side that is not matched on the other side. So for example, if you have a neuritis and one nerve is hyperactive and inflamed, you'll get this constant signal to move the eyes one way and they will drift away from that side and they'll flick back to the other side. And that's what generates nystagmus and that's what generates your sensation of movement. So generally, vertigo is from either the peripheral or central vestibular system and not matching up with each other on either side.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Um, and that kind of led into the next question that I had about the different causes of vertigo and how you start to filter them and what might actually be going on. So you've mentioned about peripheral and central there. Can you go into a little bit more detail?
3: Yeah, so I you come across this a lot in, you know, acute and emergency work and everybody is always worried about posterior posterior circulation strokes, uh, of course and partially because they they can often present without focal neurology and they you know they can be very damaging. And it's very, very important obviously to bear that in mind. You also have to bear in mind the, the, the likelihood of it because it is much more common to have a peripheral inner ear uh, problem. Um, and you often see people to, coming to the emergency department and then they're on a stroke pathway because they are older and they have cardiovascular risk factors. And they're admitted and they're imaged multiple times and, you know, and they spend a lot of time in hospital and that, you know, obviously that has its problems as well. So, you know, distinguishing between peripheral and central is kind of like the holy grail of acute dizziness. Uh, and there are, again, the same team from Johns Hopkins have published a lot on this hints uh, uh, paradigm, which we can talk about later, but that really, it can be very useful for the, an acute dizzy patient, but, you know, there's, a lot of detail to that it's not quick quick easy one to learn and you have to be very good at head impulse testing head impulse testing is really useful because when somebody's acutely dizzy their vestibular ocular reflex is not going to work on the side that's affected and therefore they will have a what we call a positive head impulse test and in central cases the majority of those posterior circulation strokes are in the cerebellum which is outside of the vor pathway so therefore their VOR is still intact and they'll have a normal head impulse test, despite the fact that they've got rollicking nystagmus and they feel awful and they and they are vomiting. Um, so the head impulse test is probably the best and quickest and most useful way to tell the difference for really acutely dizzy people, but it has its caveats. It's quite, <laughs> quite a lot to go into right now, but that, that's that would be my general overview of it. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean... Patients who I've diagnosed with a central disorder have often come into the clinic room and you can tell that something's not right with them. They might have a really weird gait. They might be demonstrating other neurological signs, have cranial nerve palsies. There's just something not quite right with them. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'm talking about spidey senses here rather than Dave's, um, (laughs) you know, evidence-based examination protocol, but patients with, um, for example, um, a brain tumor or something or fi- funny going on, they're often just not quite right in other ways. And I clu- include patients with MS because although a lot of patients with dizziness worry about MS, it's really rare for us to diagnose it. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't tend to present with dizziness. But those that do will tell you about other symptoms. They'll talk about um, limb numbness or, or other symptoms that they've had. Often when we're just doing a basic examination, we just see nystagmus that isn't right and doesn't fit in with any particular vestibular pattern.
1: It's perfect complementary uh, opinions, really, because there's one about spider senses and that is important and, and then the other that's kind of the more evidence-based side of it um, and also the cranial nerve side as well. So it's really interesting. Our next question was around red flags for vertigo not to be missed. It'd be quite nice to just do a bit of a summary of that, even though we've been through some of it.
3: Well, for me, I mean, the sort of truncalate axia and just the inability to inability to stand up is a really big one the literature talks about a sudden loss of hearing and that that's flagging for a sort of brainstem or, or labyrinthine stroke but actually those are very rare and we do see sudden losses of hearing anyway just in the peripheral audio vestibular system and then if i remember i can't i'll never remember this but there was something like the five deadly d's of dizziness and it's like uh, diplopia dysarthria dysphagia Dizzinessia, the and there's one more, and I'm I can't remember it. But if you if you Google "deadly deeds of dizziness," I think those are quite handy for red
1: flags. Oh, that's really useful. We'll we'll link to them now. Thinking about the classical presentations of peripheral vertigo, it'd be nice for you to talk us through some classical presentations here, if you will. So we're thinking about benign paroxysmal positional vertigo (BPPV), uh, vestibular neuritis, and Meniere's disease.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So there are three really big, really common ones that are very, very easy to distinguish from one another by asking your patient just one question. So once we've um, figured out that our patient has experienced true rotational vertigo, we ask them, how long does each episode last? Yeah. and so that divides those three conditions up really really um, nicely and in fact I spoke to the Manchester Neurology Society about this yesterday and um, they were all very puzzled about balance but when I split it up like this it suddenly I think made a bit of sense to them um, so if the patient says well I have really bad dizziness that lasts for just a few seconds when I turn over on my side in bed that's absolutely classic for BPPV and mm-hmm. you'd be surprised how many patients make it as far as our clinic and no one's really recognized it yet yeah. but it is an absolute treat because it's a is a really (laughs) lovely condition to test for with your dix Hall Pike test and to treat with an Epley manoeuvre. And what we know is that if um, a qualified professional carries out an Epley manoeuvre, there's about a 95% chance that the patient will achieve um, resolution of the symptoms for six months or more. There are home exercise equivalents, um, which are only, I think on the last review I read, about 50% chance to be effective. Mm, That's a big difference. Yeah yeah it's a big difference um, and it's a good reason for them to come come to our clinic if they're having ongoing symptoms.
3: yeah it's such a treatable condition and it massively increases falls risk in the in the elderly. so if it, the sooner it can be got rid of the better. And again I, I don't want to sound like I'm like you know tons full of mnemonics and things like that, <laughs> but um there are always for me there are six there are six movements that trigger BPV, and they're in three pairs. there's turning over to the left or right in bed there's lying back in bed or sitting up or there's tipping your head back or tipping your head forwards and if those trigger a a sensation that comes on like a wave and goes away within a minute or so that's bppv
1: that's really useful i got a little bit caught out thinking oh this sounded like bppv and then that she said about lying looking up and i was like oh i don't know about that one so that's really useful thank you
2: (laughs) It still fits the pattern. So the second group are the people whose um, true rotational vertigo lasts between 20 minutes and 24 hours. And they will tell you about these episodes, which make them feel very poorly. Um, They're often nauseous or they vomit during the episode. And it's associated with tinnitus or fullness in one ear and often a fluctuating hearing loss. And that's a bond or diagnosis of Meniere's disease. So Meniere's disease is a clinical diagnosis. We think it's due to raised pressure in the inner ear structures. And it has a really, really classical presentation, which patients will describe to you really clearly um, given the chance.
3: Yeah. And again, you know, it's that thing of recognising that they may have had these episodes before, but they just didn't know what they were and that they come out of the blue randomly with no real trigger. So it's completely spontaneous. And that timing is, is yeah, perfect. So it's not super short like BPPV and it's not longer like vestibular neuritis, which we can talk about in a second. And There's always some, well, there's not always, but there's often they can tell it's coming from one of their ears because it feels different. It sounds different. Hmm.
1: So then moving on, can you tell us about vestibular neuritis?
2: Yeah. So a patient who comes to you and says, I felt really, really dizzy. It lasted for four, five, six days. I couldn't get out of bed and then the dizziness resolved but i've not been right since now it might be a sort of uh, a couple of weeks lag when you guys see them by the time we see them it's often been a 12 to 18 month lag and they're just not right that's really really classic for vestibular neuritis which is essentially an inflammation of the nerve of balance often associated with a viral illness although patients often say oh i don't think i've had a cold don't think i've had a viral illness Um, it's still a really classic clinical picture Um, And we can confirm that they've had a vestibular loss. So essentially, once one in-ear has had a viral attack, a vestibular insult, it is never the same again. And patients will tell you this. They say, I've not been the same since. And that's because they've got a vestibular loss in one ear. And in the clinic, um, we usually know what it is by the time they've used those words to tell us. But um, we also do a head impulse test. Or in fact, David does an advanced version of that, which is a video head impulse test to, to record their vestibular loss. And these patients aren't going to recover their vestibular loss, but they can improve their functional balance and their confidence and their strength through vestibular rehabilitation, physiotherapy.
3: So there there is really no decent treatment for uh, vestibular neuritis. You know, I think the BMJ says possibly give them some antiemetics for a few days, but please do not put them on vestibular suppressants because <laughs> if they do, then they won't compensate and we want them to compensate, which is what Emma was talking about. And the best way for them to compensate is to to be active and ideally to do vestibular exercises, which can be, you know, they can they can be guided through that by uh, audiologists, physiotherapists. There's quite a few people out there that will do it. And, you know, in your local audiology center, there may be someone who does vestibular rehab. The, the thing I would add to that as well is um, there's sometimes confusion between labyrinthitis and vestibular neuritis. And the difference is labyrinthitis comes with a hearing loss. And it often resolves, but not always. Whereas vestibular neuritis is just an inflammation of the vestibular portion of the nerve.
2: Amazing.
1: So, is that don't use beta histine and and medications like that because then they won't be
2: able to recover there? So. So prochlorperazine or Stematil is the one that we don't like our patients having long term because that really dampens things down. So it makes the acute vestibular episodes better, but if they take it in the long term, it can make them feel terrible and yeah. it can stop them rehabilitating.
3: Yeah, and it, sorry to interrupt but it can also have extra side effects as well. So we you know I see patients that that saw a GP or or someone in an emergency department years ago and they've been on three prochlorperazine a day for years and they've got a tremor. So you know, be careful about that, really.
2: beta is different. beta doesn't really dampen down the vestibular system. In fact, we don't really know how beta histine works. And the evidence out there is that, yeah, perhaps it works a bit, um, but it's worth trying because it doesn't really have much in the way of side effects. So beta histine or cinarizine are medications that we do absolutely try before we um, go on to trialing other therapies, especially for our patients with Meniere's disease.
3: So is the motion sickness pill that you can buy over the counter as well. And that has been shown to have a, a suppressant effect. So if they're going to do re- rehab, we'd rather they weren't on that usually. Um I suppose the, uh, you mentioned those three big ones, BPPV, many and and neuritis, and they really are three of the big ones. But the other one I would say that is much more common than people realize is vestibular migraine. And it's, uh, it's, very the it's it's quite it can be quite hard to differentiate between that and many airs disease because they both present in episodes that come out of the blue. So the four categories I was talking about earlier, the episodic spontaneous category that would be vestibular migraine versus many airs. And it by the look of the literature, and my my experience, vestibular migraine is more common than many airs, it won't have the or the um, orthological symptoms Uh, they will maybe have a history of headache or a family history of migraine there may be other things like photophobia and phonophobia during the episodes
2: I think now that we know that vestibular migraine is a thing we're seeing it more and more and these might be patients who previously would have said well your hearing's normal there's not really much wrong with you Um, we now know that it, it probably is a variant of migraine and therefore we've got treatment options for it patients are very glad as well often by the time they reach us they've been without a diagnosis with mm-hmm. horrible symptoms for a long time and um, one of the things that i um, sort of tell our students about is that we often don't cure someone's dizziness because it's really really hard to cure dizziness but by listening to them and you know doing what we can they're usually very very grateful
3: yeah <laughs> yeah um and, and I suppose the other thing about vestibular migraine that's worth mentioning is that, uh, from my experience, and also I, th- I think that people have published on this, that, that it does respond as well as a classical migraine to prophylaxis. And that can be managed in primary care. And there's, you know, the headache, the specialist headache clinics that generally don't tend to want to see those people until they've tried everything and nothing's worked. Um, but that's the kind of thing where we can happily send them back to primary care and most people, most people, when they find the drug that works for them, you know, can get a lot of benefit for, from that.
0: Yeah, that's fab, but I think it's just putting that on people's radar because I don't think it would always kind of be in the, like for us even writing these, it wasn't in our top hitters of thinking about it. So it's good to get that message out actually because it's something that can be easily solved in primary care and um, without people having to wait for ages to try and get a diagnosis. The next thing we just wanted to ask about was examination um in these patients, and you have talked about a couple of specific tests um that can be done um, but just generally, what do you find helpful in terms of differentiating the causes of um of vertigo, and then maybe give us a bit more explanation of the specialist stuff if that's okay?
3: Yeah. Um- uh, I suppose the two the two really handy clinical tests for that I feel like everyone should know are the Dix Hall Pike and the head impulse test. There are loads of fancy other vestibular tests and they require lots of technology and equipment but you know that you don't need those outside of a specialist center. A head impulse test can tell you a lot about whether it's peripheral or, or central and and Dix hall Pike will tell you whether there's bPPV so if you can get good at those two things they're really really handy
0: and if people do want to get better at those things have you got any pointers about where we can send them any good resources
3: there's a good there's a couple of good bmj uh, videos on Dix-Hallpike pike and on epley um that are really clear and then there's tons of videos on the head impulse on on youtube as well
1: i get confused with the head impulse test so can you talk us through a little bit so when it's positive what does that mean and when it's negative what does that mean
2: Yeah, so this is difficult to explain uh, without sort of images or videos. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Sound only, using only words, um, describe the head impulse test. (laughs) I'll let David answer this because he's really good at this. It's what he does day in, day out. (laughs)
3: Um, Okay, so... You've got, so say if you're doing a head impulse test, generally you're testing the the horizontal semicircular canals and the the connection between them and the eyes. It's a really simple, very quick reflex. It's the quickest reflex in the body, three-neuron arc, out of the ears, down the brainstem, back out to the eyes. And um, when you turn your head either way, if you want to keep looking at a spot in front of you, your eyes will have to move in exactly the opposite direction with exactly the same speed in order to stay on that same point. And people with working vestibular ocular reflexes can do this easily. So you you hold their head, you ask them to look at the bridge of their nose and you move their head quickly from side to side with a bit of a pause in between each movement. And it needs to be a quick, sharp movement with a sudden stop. And you're looking at what their eyes do and their eyes should sort of eerily remain fixed on yours. Even though they've turned, rotated within their head, their eyes are still fixed on, your, on the bridge of your nose because that's because both of their horizontal Semicircular canals are outputting the right signal and that VOR is working on both sides. If you've got one side that doesn't work, or in fact, even if, you know, you can have two sides that don't work, but if you if you push the head towards a side that doesn't work, the eyes will not get the signal quickly enough from that peripheral vestibular system. And they will stay in the center, in the middle of the orbit, and they will move with the head and go off your nose. And then they will have to circade back. They'll, their eyes will zip back onto your nose. So you will see that especially when they're, you know, when they've just become dizzy, they're acute, you know, they've got vestibular neuritis or it's a new, it's a new loss before they've compensated. You will see a very big old, what's called a catch-up saccade. So you push their head to the side that's weak, their eyes go away from your nose and then they zip back onto your nose. And if you find that you, every time you do that repeatedly, maybe three or more times, every time it happens, they always zip back onto your nose. Then you've got you're looking at a peripheral vestibular loss on that side, and that's a positive head impulse to to that side. You've got to be a bit careful because people, especially older people, will just have fixation instability, and they will just zip their eyes around a little bit, especially if they're nervous or they're anxious and looking so directly at you. That's why you need to do it multiple times to make sure it's repeatable. Does that make sense?
1: That is absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, And just
0: thinking about uh, who needs to see you guys um, in in ENT, um, who would you like to see being referred from primary care to yourselves?
2: Yeah, so earlier on, we talked about our patients with Meniere's disease and how we would maybe trial some conservative management or we might trial them on some medication. And if those things don't work, they probably need to come and see us because, you know, a lot of these are young people in their 30s 40s 50s with lives and jobs and having disabling vertigo on a regular basis is not acceptable and the next step after medication used to be very destructive major surgery but we now have injections into panic injections which work absolutely brilliantly and i deliver a lot of these so patients whose many disease hasn't settled down with conservative measures or medication i will off absolutely offer them um, a course of injections the first um type that we try is an intratympanic dexamethasone injection which essentially we inject it through the eardrum with a bit of local anesthetic it gets absorbed into the inner ear through the round window of the cochlea and it just reduces the pressure it just settles everything down and it sounds a bit like you know crazy magic but um, about 90% of patients absolutely love these injections and get relief from their symptoms for 6 months a year two years some of them I never see again um, and about 10% of people don't benefit from the dexamethasone injections. And that's probably because they've got some soft tissue or bone overlying the round window so that their dexamethasone can't get to it. And I can't really tell you how good the injection therapy is. Uh, patients really, really benefit from it. And there are and there are further steps. So the treatment for MNEA's disease is very much stepwise. And I think if they haven't benefited from medication, they probably do need to come to a specialist clinic to consider further management options.
3: Yeah, um... I probably add to that. So obviously, you know, more complex uh, dizziness that doesn't easily fit into the categories we were talking about earlier, they should certainly come to an ENT balance clinic. I would add to that that you know if you uh, have got a really barn door history of what sounds like vestibular neuritis, and when you see the if you manage to see them early on and you do get a positive head impulse test or you see their eyes rolling around and you're fairly convinced, but they're still a bit wishy washy, their still balance is still a bit off, and when they move quickly they go a bit dizzy and you know, they just don't feel like what they were, then they need to really do some vestibular rehab. And there are, you know, in your local area, it's worth working figuring out which physiotherapists and which audiologists do that. And, you know, then hopefully you can send directly to them. And a similar kind of thing for BPPV, if you, you don't feel confident treating them or maybe you've tried treating them and not getting anywhere, then again, that's something that probably a physio and audiologist can help with rather than, you know, going into a, a longer probably a longer wait time for ent but if you have those connections in your you know local area you know that's kind of the thing that's worth establishing so that you can you can send people and get get them treated quickly because for both for bppv and rehab the earlier you get them the better really
1: yeah well that's really useful thank you um and then you've talked about what um, patients might expect from attending the clinic if they've got Men- meniere's disease. But what about for other patients? So say like we have somebody who's not recovered well after their uh, vestibular neuronitis or labyrinthitis, uh, what might they expect from the clinic?
2: Yeah, so they'd probably see, get to see us together. Um, we would take a history from them. Um, David would do a video head impulse test there and then in the clinic to confirm their unilateral vestibular loss. And should that be the case, we'd let them know that we're going to arrange some vestibular rehabilitation physiotherapy for them. So we wouldn't do that the same day. Um, We might give them them some some exercises to get started on at home. Um, But essentially, we'd usually, um, if they've made it as far as us, it means they haven't compensated. So they'd really benefit from a face-to-face session to start their rehab. And we'd organise that for them um, in the near future.
3: Yeah.
2: If we can pinch some of those, if you've got any online exercise sheets
1: and things that we can pinch some of your resources.
3: Yeah, well, I would point everyone towards uh, Lucy Yardley's. Um, it's called, oh, what's it called? Retraining Your Balance or something like that. It's a small, it's about a 13-page booklet. You can, It's open source. You can print it off. It's really good. It's well-evidence-based. And there's lots of, dif- there's, quite, there's not too many exercises. There's a good amount of exercises in there for them to get started on. And you can, they can, you know, there's instructions on how to kind of self-pace. Um, so if you, you know, especially if you're out, not anywhere near a a big centre that does rehab, that Lucy Yardley's book is really good.
1: That's really good. Thank you. Um, So um, we thought we'd give you a bit of a run for your money. And I was just thinking when we were writing these questions about all the patients that feel like they're not fitting into boxes, although actually... I think now they are fitting into more boxes. <laughs> um, but say like we, we've got a kind of hypothetical case to throw at you, if you don't mind, just to see what your initial thoughts are. Um, we've picked somebody called Sandra. She's 60 years old and she's come into us feeling really woozy and uh, funny after having had COVID. So she had COVID a few weeks ago, had a bit snotty, coughing, bit of a headache and then sort of gradually over a couple of days started feeling dizzy a bit like she was drunk but without the fun part and she's off balance so she comes in holding a few things her hearing is fine her, there's no tinnitus she's had no cranial nerve symptoms no visual symptoms she's otherwise okay she's keeping food down she's not vomiting um, but she just does not feel right and she's quite off balance when she is walking around So can we get your
2: initial thoughts on that case? I mean, um, Sandra sounds like quite a few of the patients we see. She's Mm. about the right age. Um, She's got all the right symptoms. And we've seen a lot of dizziness following COVID infection both sort of non-specific and specific. Now, Sandra's case does sound a bit to me like a case of viral uh, vestibular neuronitis. So we would certainly take a history from her, find out when it first came on, how she felt at that time and how she'd been doing since. We'd find out a bit more about her general health and I'd have a look in her ears. We always need to look in ears to see if there's any ear pathology that's catching us out. And then I'd hand over to David who would. Yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, absolutely all that stuff and then if it wasn't you know obvious in 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 our clinic with something as simple and as quick as a video head impulse test there is you know we then can see them in a in a much more in-depth clinic where we get 90 minutes with them and that we've got a whole room full of tests to try with them to try and pin down you know because within the peripheral vestibular system there's five end organs and there's the connections up into the brain stem and we can more or less test most of that and With these post-COVID dizziness patients, you know, some of them are, like Emma says, quite vague and they don't have peripheral vestibular or they don't have any concrete findings. And some of them do genuinely, genuinely do. We have seen some objective audio vestibular loss and it may have viral causes. We, 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 I think the jury's a little bit out. The literature's a a bit vague still at this point, Um, but definitely some of them are, are having genuine audio vestibular loss. And some of them are having um, what has been, what's been called now for quite a while, um, triple PD. Um, So this is uh, the term that used to be, it used to be called chronic subjective dizziness. And these days it's called persistent postural perceptual dizziness. And it tends to be a chronic dizziness that is triggered by an initial event. And the initial event is usually vestibular, but not always. It's something that puts you off balance and makes you dizzy, but you have an extreme, you have an anxious response to. So it tends to be patients that either have a pre-existing history of anxiety or, or have a very, uh, you know, an acute uh, anxious response to the initial event. And then it puts certain circuits in the brain on high alert for good. There's sort of maladaptive process I'll never get that word right Uh, that kind of goes on and keeps everything in in a very like high risk postural control uh, mode and there tends to be this kind of general feeling of movement chronic dizziness fuzziness in the head that goes away when they lie down they're not upright and, and that's the postural part and uh, they can often find that it, it's worsened in with visual complexity. If they're in visually busy environments, it's worse with lots of movement and it's there all the time. And we, I've certainly seen a bit of that from COVID. And part of that is because, you know, having lived through this pandemic, having COVID-19 is quite an anxiety provoking thing to have because you sort of don't know what you're going to end up with. You hear, all, you hear about all sorts of different things. So there, people are having anxious responses too having COVID and then possibly they're having viral uh, post-viral problems or they're, they're having inflammation of the inner ear and, and that's leading to triple PD. And that needs a kind of multidisciplinary approach. The literature points you towards vestibular rehab as one thing, cognitive behavioral therapy as a the second, um, and then in some cases SSRIs can help. But that's worth reading up on if you do get patients like that.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting though actually it's making a lot of sense
2: yeah and i'm thinking i can remember some patients that that would apply to but you won't think of it until you've sort of learned about it so hopefully now that you know you know about it when it comes along you're like oh this sounds a bit like triple pd
1: yeah absolutely very interesting so our next question is about resources and i'm really happy that we've got some really good ones there The retaining your balance resource sounds brilliant um and then the things that you mentioned earlier on dave about the the deadly the five deadly d's (laughs) any other resources that you think are would be quite useful for people if they want to know more about this topic
3: um there is an organization called veda v-e-d-a Now I cannot. I I know the V is Vestibular and D A are Disorders Association, but I can't for the life of me remember what E is. It's an American thing, and they have tons of resources uh, for clinicians and patients. Like the patient information is pretty good, and like sort of downloadable PDFs of various different things. The Meniere Society is quite helpful. Uh, Their website is quite good.
2: Yeah, I was going to mention the Meniere Society because a lot of patients with disabling dizziness go online and join patient groups and whip themselves up into a frenzy because there's a lot of rubbish information out there but there's also some really fantastic information out there and I think if we direct our patients towards resources like the Meniere society where we know the information is good uh, they're more likely to have a, a better journey
3: yeah I'd probably add to that as well migraine trust they're a UK uh, based organization they're very good they've got lots of info on there yeah
1: brilliant they're, these are really useful resources yeah that's good stuff there
0: um so we always end our episodes by asking our guests what they want and listeners to remember from the episode what their top take-home points are and so if you've got anything that you um you want people to remember
2: i mean i would come back to what i mentioned earlier with which is that it's really all about the history and if you Ask a few key questions. You probably will be able to pin down what's going on with your patient. And the second thing, I guess, is if you're not sure um, what's going on or if you've tried things that haven't worked, then absolutely we would love to meet those patients.
3: Yeah, I'd I'd agree. Um, It's all about the history. You know, essentially, what does it feel like? How long does it last and does anything make it happen? Really, really important to ask that straight away yeah the other thing would be just to repeat that if in primary care you can get confident feel confident doing a head impulse and a dicks hall pipe that will really see you you know see you well
1: that's incredible yeah and what how many minutes are we on and you've managed to cover that much it's unbelievable thank you so so much both of you no problem
2: no problem thank you for having us we're very, very grateful to get the opportunity to share some some yeah. of our experience mm.
0: So, uh, yes, Sarah, wasn't that just absolutely fabulous? I am so happy with that chat. Um, We've wanted this for so long and it was perfect. Um, What did you take away?
1: Yeah, as soon as we uh, came off the call, I think I just said, I can't believe that I've gotten this far in my... (laughs) training and not have that conversation because it's just clarified so much yeah. um I just feels like I just missed that part of of medicine and I have you know I've, I've tried I've done lots and uh, I'm not horrific at vertigo it's just that there's just so much to know yeah. um and yeah they just clarified so, so so much I really enjoyed just thinking about the timing the triggers uh, episodic, non-episodic, um, and then triggered or spontaneous. I just thought was a really good sorting hat, really, really useful. Um, and then, oh, I love a really just that simple point that just clarified something that I didn't work out for ages. Which is the difference between vestibular neuronitis and labyrinthitis is that that labyrinthitis has got hearing involvement. Yeah. Like, oh, it's that simple. Wow. Okay.
0: Yeah. yeah. I know. <laughs> um, and I was just uh, like, yeah, it was just such the basics, but. It just oh, everything made sense things like um i know that people always talk about um balance being ears and vision and proprioception but i like that um she added in and a healthy brain and connections because that kind of yeah ties it all together a bit better for me um in terms of thinking about wider causes of dizziness and then just that simple definition of vertigo that it's an illusion of movement i'm
1: like oh yeah that's just quite simple but yeah it's effective isn't it <laughs> yeah And honestly, it felt like um, complete brainwaves when they were talking us through typical cases for peripheral vertigo, even though I kind of thought I knew them really well. I was like, oh, right, you know, the BPPV, it can be when you're looking up um, and then and then the the vestibular neuronitis can last much longer.
0: Exactly. Um, and even just thinking about vestibular migraine um like i said in the episode it's just not something that necessarily would come to mind but yeah that's and and the triple pd as well um yeah just having that on your radar because that that fits quite a few patients particularly because it can have that initial trigger yeah and and then you've got these people who keep coming back and it's not right and yeah you know that they would fit into that picture um so yeah that was fascinating and then just um hearing about the, the head impulse test Um, because i think the biggest panic that um i always had was missing the stroke um that was always the thing um and his explanation was really useful for that and if you can kind of kneel down how to do that properly in practice i feel
1: like it would be so helpful yeah the head impulse test is going to be a total game changer i've I've tried it and i just kind of wasn't uh, at all convinced by what i was doing so i think it's going to be a lot more yeah enjoyable. just turning lots of people's heads <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lots <laughs> and there's resources just lapping yeah, them up so many good things um i'm going to link to everything
0: because there, there are loads there that are just going to be amazing for everybody but yeah hopefully you find it as good as we did um and that for everybody out there who asked for us to do vertigo that it fulfilled what you wanted as well and keep getting in touch and um, we do do things that people ask us to so if you've got any bright ideas or anything that you want um, us to cover then please let us know um and thank you to everyone who does
1: yeah lovely till next time I'm primary care knowledge Beast. This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wiganborough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts
0: are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public.
1: They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022 guidelines can vary by location as well as over time so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewees opinion and interpretation of
0: current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast.
1: Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.